Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, episode 15, Pleasant Pheasant. Nick was invited along on a Michigan pheasant hunt. He lays out the details of the hunt with his friends Judd and Ben. Later he recounts the hunt and some of the steps necessary to prepare the birds for a fully flavorful meal. Where is Dustin, you may ask? Probably checking the ice. Still too thin around here for any type of ice fishing. Anyway, let's get on with the hunt. Here we are, Hunt of War Podcast. Uh, we are currently heading east, going eastward in a vehicle. This is brand new, mobile Hunt of War. Uh, sitting here with neighbor Judd. Judd, give us a hi. Hey there. Judd, um, how long have you been hunting waterfowl? Just to get a background from you. Hunting waterfowl probably started at first when I was, I don't know, eight, nine. And hunting with my stepdad, hunting uh, some goose management units here. And then I fell out of it, high school age, just had other stuff to do. And then uh, after that, kind of picked it back up on my own. And I've uh, been doing it ever since then. Nice. We're also joined by our, our our chauffeur, Ben. Ben, pretty boy, Hoxma. Ben, we gave you the name Pretty Boy. I think for a couple different reasons. The one that I know is that uh, you've got you've got top of the line guns. When we went out to the the range jailer earlier this summer, pulls out his at that moment's the Golden Boy. The uh, Henry, the Henry boy, amazing gun. And then he's also very particular in his ammo that he shoots. What what kind of ammo does he shoot, Judd? Uh, he was shooting the heavy metal, which comes in a gold-colored plastic case, shot shell. I think the gold is what it appeals appeals to Ben. Yeah, he's giving us the they're, thumbs up. They're pretty good-looking shells, Ben. If they charged a dollar more per box for a metallic gold finish on each shell, would you pay the extra money? <laughs> He's also giving He's, the thumbs uh, up. Yeah. Maybe a, a dollar doesn't seem that much. It probably costs more. A dollar, a dollar more for heavy metal is uh, is not much in the grand scheme of things. I was going to say, what is it like? Forty dollars a box. Yeah. So if it was that. fifty dollars a box, <laughs> would you still go for the metallic finish? Ooh, he's giving the shaky, shaky. Not quite sure. I think he'd do it once, once to to have him. But anyway, we're not we're not here chasing waterfowl today. We're on our way uh, near Jackson, Michigan, for chasing pheasants today. Something that is brand new to myself. Um, I've done some small game, so I've I've dealt with critters on the ground. Uh, dabbled. I've gone with. A few people water following, but this is a brand new experience uh, for our pheasants. Judd, is this your first time? You've been out a couple times. Been right? out a handful of times. Um, um, we're heading heading to a preserve or a farm. They raise the birds and then send them out into into fields, into surrounding property, where then we end up chasing them. Right. Um, what I'm finding out more and more is there's there's several different 
formats to hunting pheasants. You have your private land or open property wild, quote unquote, wild birds that uh, you have to go find and chase. You have our version where we're we're going out to placed birds. And by placed birds, I mean they're, they're let go. They're not physically placing these birds out, but dizzying the birds and placing them. That's not our our cup of tea, is it no. today? Nope. We're paying for the birds to be there. Um, they, I'm not sure if they're setting them out in the fields today or if they did it last night. I've heard it's done both ways. Um, but it's, uh, it's a way to have a high, high percentage chance at success as a hunter, but also at the same time gives the birds a fair chance at, I guess, somewhat of a fair chase. Gotcha. So, we're like, yeah, we're like half and half when it comes to fair chase at yep. this moment. Um, seeing how, is this your first time, Ben? He's giving me the nod. Yeah, this is his first time for pheasants, too. Probably shot, so, a, probably shot a few pheasants on the farm as a kid, way, but... Way back when, yeah. yeah. Way back when, when pheasants were more prevalent. Um, he said he had shot, shot a couple. But uh, this format, this is brand new for Ben and I. We're, uh, we're going to give it a shot. There's another format from a tower you were describing me earlier where they release the birds from a tower, and it's set up almost kind of like a skeet shoot. Am I right? You were saying like there's stations. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's pretty accurate. Um, it's called a European-style tower hunt. Um, same thing, you're paying for birds to be there, and they bring them to a centrally located tower, and around this tower, um, I don't know if each farm is different, but the one I went to, it was probably 75, 80 yards from the tower, from the center of the circle where the tower was to the outside, there were stations uh, set up in a circle. And they would throw birds from the tower up into the air, and the birds would fly outward. And as they got to where the stations were, the hunters were they could do they could shoot them and you know, they throw out a handful of birds they do a horn and then you kind of rotate to the next tower so everybody in the group uh, has a chance to shoot from all sides it's it's fun personally it was not my style i did it i didn't feel it was very sporting um if I had a big group of people and they wanted to go do it, I would probably do it again, but it's not something I'm I'm out to go do. Yeah. Probably something if you were you had a group of guys that are just getting into wing shooting, that might be that would offer them a chance to, to try it out. Sure. Um, yeah, the fair chase at that moment is a little little off, but that's beside the point. I digress. <laughs> Our format today is they'll be out in the field. And we got to go find them. Yep. We're um, do the walk-up style. Yeah. Now, we are joined by several more people that are going to be meeting us there. And we're going to be with hunting with some dogs as well. They're going to be helping us flush. Are they pointers? I know you're not a huge dog guy, but are they pointers or oh, flushers? Or is there I, anything that's called a flusher? It's uh, There are. A lot of... There's... Uh, 
mean, I guess some of the diehard Upland game guys would probably run multiple dogs. We're going to have three today. They're all labs. I don't think any of them are pointing labs. So I think they're just going to be uh, sniffing and bouncing through the fields. And we're going to have to be on our toes for a flush at any given moment. Are these Whereas, uh, are these like duck and goose dogs that um, are being just brought out to get them some exercise? For the most part, I think they do waterfowl. Um, I know that uh, my buddy Dave, who is bringing the dogs, he does do his fair share of upland, and they do get regular practice at this. Um, so it's, it's not going to be anything new to them, but we don't have any pointers where you know, a pointing dog would stop and freeze and show you exactly where a bird might be. You get a second to prepare for where the bird is and how to shoot where the bird's going to flush to. Like I said, today it's, it's going to be just me walking and there goes bird. Okay. I'm excited. Um, doing a little bit of my searching around. I did a quick couple inter internet searches on, on a little bit about pheasants. I Again, it's something that I'm, I'm just getting into. So finding out these were these are indigenous to Eastern Asia, China, and... Quite a while ago, the Europeans took them, brought them to Europe, where then they created populations there to chase around, and now they've been brought over here to the U.S. You know, when they when they came over, when the Europeans came over, so did the pheasants, and they've adapted semi well. Uh, decades ago, you could get a lot more wild populations about that. There were enough. Uh, enough farms with enough field rows or left standing grain that there was places to hide they had good cover and more more wooded areas that they could be able to hang out in as we're finding with just about every uh, every wildlife species habitat is now becoming critical and we're seeing farmers get bigger bigger uh, fields but yet they farm much cleaner leaving less out there. There's less uh, fence row habitat for these critters to run around in. So you, we've seen populations dwindle. Um, but with enough guys and enough passion to want to chase the birds, we end up with these preserves that we're able to uh, to go in. Uh, so these are some pen raised. They're not necessarily wild raised birds. Right. Um, I'm sure they're still very skittish of human. And we're going to get a chance to go chase them. I don't want to start talking uh, culinary pursuits yet because I feel that would be putting the shot ahead of the bird. We still got to find these suckers. There's a there's a bit of bit of work that needs to be done. Judd, normal flush that you've experienced as as you're walking through this field. What type of ranges are we looking at on these birds popping up? Well, it can. Uh there is definitely a uh, varying range. They, especially with dogs today, like I said, are not gonna be pointing. Dogs could be out 20 yards in front of us, so a bird could flush at that distance. Uh, pheasants are very well camouflaged, especially the hens, which today we're at a preserve. You are allowed to shoot hens and roosters at these preserves. Um, the hens, being so well camouflaged, will just kind of tuck into the brush and you will pretty much step right on top of them at times before they flush. 
the house. So you, you might see birds flush 30, 40 yards out in front of us, and you might see birds flush within 10 yards of us at the same time. So it's varied. We might get some that, yeah, the dogs kick up 20 yards away, and we might get some that <laughs> we step on. In yeah. fact, I, there are cases, I think, I've, I think I read it in a quick article from Field and Stream, some individuals have had heart attacks from having pheasants flushed straight underneath them. So not only are we chasing this bird, but this bird is looking to bite back a little bit. <laughs> maybe, maybe get us with our own, uh, our, our own flaws. What kind of equipment are we bringing out? Um, I, I'm a generalist. As far as I, I have one gun that kind of does everything for me, and that's my 12 gauge. You're bringing something out different, and I know we got another guy who's bringing out a different, at least gauge of gun. What what are you bringing out, and what kind of loads are you throwing into your gun today? Yep, we're gonna have a pretty good selection of guns today. Um, I myself brought two guns. I am probably gonna start with the 12 gauge. Um, it's my waterfall gun. It's a Stoger M3500. Um, I will be shooting, out of that gun at least, I'll be shooting um, some three-inch number four-shot steel. Um, if I were shooting lead or some other heavier-than-steel load, I would probably bump it up to uh, maybe a number six-shot. Um, I also brought my 20-gauge uh, Benelli Nova pump. I probably won't use that. Probably only in emergencies if I run out of ammo or have some sort of malfunction. Um, my buddy Dave is bringing, I believe, four guns, but he's bringing his wife with him. So four guns between two of them. I think he's got some side-by-sides, uh, 12 gauges, maybe even a 16. And what I'm really interested in seeing is I believe he's going to be shooting a 28 gauge. So. That's he's, a, he's pretty much going to be tiny, shooting. Uh, that's a tiny gun. A, a rifle, almost. Yeah. Not a lot. Of, not a lot of shot coming out of that one. Is that comparatively to like a 410? Um, I've got a good history with a 410. Is that a touch bigger? Or I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm also familiar with 410, but I'm not sure where uh, the 28 gauge stands in relation. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm bringing a couple different boxes I because I was uh, new to this I, I sought out some people some experts and I think maybe my problem was I had too many experts uh, the number four was mentioned to get some of the, the number four shots so I picked up some of that um, another uh, another source said go with uh, number two the reason they wanted the number or said for the number two is you would have to do less picking you're getting bigger shot it's going quicker. It's going to rip through that. Excuse me, not rip. Zip is what he said. Zip through the bird so that there's less shot that I'm pulling out. Or if it is stuck in there, uh, it's bigger to, to pick out. And then I did bring, and I think it is lead, but anyway, I brought some, uh, some target load just in case I run out and need to have something to, to pump at the, the animal. I got some smaller shot there. Sure. So we've got a good array of, of ammunition and of an arsenal coming at them, different gauges uh, to do that. But side-by-sides, are those, uh, well, yeah, side-by-side, he's got two barrels on there. Is that probably break action? That's yep. the, the old school style hunting right there. Yep. Another buddy of mine, Scott, he's going to be bringing his uh, over-under, which is 
over-unders are pretty popular for uh, upland guys nowadays. Yeah, you're finding more and more guys like over-under as opposed to side-by-side? I think over-unders are just more popular in general now. I could be wrong. Um, If I were to pick up a two-barreled shotgun, it would probably be an over-under. I just personally like that look better. And uh, I think the over-under may be, I don't want to say more accurate, but maybe easier to shoot accurately. Whereas side-by-side, you have two barrels next to each other. One shot is going to be that much farther left or right than the other. Whereas an over-under, you're on the same vertical line and not horizontal. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, well, hey, we're going to take a quick break here for a second and uh, get some snacks. We're going to get some water, some some liquid, and, uh, yeah, we'll let you know how this goes. We, we're going to we're gonna come back, and if we get some, then we can talk cooking these pheasants up. But right now, we're hens in the bush and nothing in the hand. Stay tuned. Folks, we're back. Now, it's uh, been a couple days since the actual hunt. Um, Judd and I couldn't quite record after we were done. Both of us were pretty doggone spent at the end of the day. Um, Upland hunting. Never knew that you were going to burn as many calories as I thought I would. Um, In fact, I think he had his uh, his, uh, watch on that can take heart rate, steps, um, the amount of distance you've covered. And I think we covered five and a half miles. There was 11,000 steps done by Judd. And I feel all of them were in a high knee fashion. So five and a half miles of high knees. We were a little toast, but I digress. The, uh, hunt was a ton of fun. Something that I personally hadn't experienced, um, being in the field, not on your own, but with several people. It became a, a team effort. I didn't necessarily, I mean, I wanted to shoot as many pheasants as I could, but a bird would flush, and the fact that a couple guys would get a shot on it and down it would get me excited. Um, we had already set up at the beginning of the hunt that, hey, whatever birds we're going to get, we're going to uh, disperse them. So the kind of the goal became get eight at least so that we could um, each walk out of there with a bird but uh, we totaled out with uh, 21 birds total for eight people and we were able to then walk away with three for ourselves which was a real treat Um, but yeah it was a real fun bonding experience Uh, first time I'd seen dogs really work as well we had I believe five total dogs well four four and a half dogs Uh, the one a uh, little wire terry or the wire rhymer. Anyway, he was uh he was just a pup and he he worked his butt off. He was really trying hard, got real tired, but the effort was there. So good for uh Lee and his dog that was really working hard and then several others uh pointing and um retrieving birds. It was really a neat experience. Um, really enjoyed that. So now we've got our birds back. Um, like I said, it's been a couple days since then. 
Um, so now I get to how are we going to treat this animal? How are we going to now turn this um, pheasant into something that we can put on the platter? Uh, so I go back to um, Hank Shaw, and in fact, I had just picked up his books, um, Pheasant, Quail, Cottontail. And so that was a great resource to go in. Um, not just recipes in that, but he's got some field handling and some different feet or um, bird care tips that you should uh, be looking at. Um, and one of the first ones that I saw was hanging your birds, going for an aged, uh, aged bird as opposed to just a fresh out of the field. Um, depending on taste, you could just want to get your bird, get home, pluck it or skin it get it in uh, in a roaster or however you plan to do it, making schnitzel, it'll come out as a real mild flavor, fresh out of the field. And people enjoy that and more power to them. Hank goes on to talk about that the real uniqueness of a pheasant comes out through an aging or a hanging of the birds. Um, and it's just as what it sounds. You're going to hang that bird, feathers on, guts in, for a period of time, in a controlled setting. Um, he references somewhere between 50 and 55 degrees. And for an older pheasant, he's looking for, yeah, an older pheasant, looking for more days. For a wild pheasant, you're going to be looking for more days added on. Versus a younger bird could handle just a few days of being hung. And if it was pen raised, it could also handle a few days as opposed to longer. And it it's going to be uh, on your preference as well. Um, if you get a really old wild bird, it could be up to a week where that you're hanging that bird in that controlled environment versus kind of the pen, young to pen raised animals we were going for. Uh, you could go for one to three days, depending on your, your preference. Um, and I'll get into what I did with our birds here in just a moment. So after the hanging, he, Hank goes on in his uh, description of getting into plucking. There's two types of plucking. There's wet plucking, um, where you're actually scalding the bird. And it sounds terrible to say that, but what they mean by scalding is, is you are heating up that skin. So you are going to uh, get some hot water and dunk that bird in. And by doing that, it is going to loosen up those feathers and those quills that you're able to then pull those out much easier than you would be able to on a dry pluck. The wet pluck happens best if you have a lot of birds and they're fresh out of the field. That's going to be probably your best setup. If you're getting right home to clean them right away, you'll want to go with the wet pluck. Um, if you're going to go with the age uh, where you're hanging them for a couple days, you're going to want to do the dry pluck only. The wet pluck, I don't think, is going to work as well, um, at least by Hank's recommendations. And there's a third way, too, where you're actually waxing the bird. And I've, heard, I've seen this done more with ducks or geese, something with a heavy down coat um, that a lot of those feathers are just super small, and there's so many packed together that you actually melt paraffin wax in a large vessel and you're able to then filled with water and then the paraffin wax is on top so then you dunk the bird all the way in and as you draw the bird out the wax coats the outside of the bird 
You give it a minute or two to solidify, and then it's much easier to pull those off. I think something with a thicker skin or a big fat layer, that's going to work well. Not sure that's going to be really uh, useful in a small upland bird type situation, say a pheasant. Um, Because these uh, birds have such a thin skin, you're going to only want to pluck three to four feathers at a time. And that might even be on the thicker side of the bird. You might even want to go just two feathers. Um, Having a quick motion where you're grabbing and plucking um, the feather out. It's It's not a pull. It's not a yank. It's just a quick pluck. There's almost a wrist action to it. Uh, By pulling those out, you're able to then work slowly along that bird. So yeah, that was some of the recommendations that I got out of the book. Now, here's what I actually did. Um, I didn't have a controlled setting of 50 to 55 degrees. I had an uninsulated Michigan garage. (laughs) And I barely just took a string and hung it from two... uh, two by fours, and by having it have a little bit of slack, I could use a double loop and hang the, or and uh, loop the foot of each bird, having it the weight of the bird actually give taunt to the string so it was able to just sit there and hang. And I gave them a solid 24 hours. Now, my temperature was a little low, uh, somewhere in the mid-30s. Uh, it would get warmer, probably get up to 34 during those couple days, but then it would drop down pretty cold during the night. So as much age as I got on those birds for just 24 hours, probably not a ton. If it were an older bird and if it were a wild bird, I would have probably more of an issue as far as not getting the age to bring out that pheasant flavor. Being that these were younger birds and pen-raised, I think my 24 hours has been pretty good. In fact, when I pulled the bird or pulled the bird off to then pluck the ones that I had saved, um, the the plucking was actually quite easy. The skin itself had a bit of a uh, dry waxiness to it. I could tell that there was some moisture evaporation. Now we didn't get these birds wet by any means, and they had dried out just in the the colder temperatures. And then I had left the doors open during the day, so there was enough of a moving air to dry those out. But by doing that, I had a real pretty simple pluck on those. Now, where I had shot in the breast or shot in the back, I had lots of tearing. And that was just something I I couldn't avoid, both by the shot damage and just me beginning to grab more than three or four feathers. It's a tedious job. It's going to take time, and you can't rush it. Um you can skin the bird and be done in a jiff, but I think what you're doing is you're sacrificing a bit of the flavor in the natural fat of the bird that's under the skin and the skin itself. I really wanted to give that a full test, being that this is my first pheasant. I wanted to get as much of the pheasant um, in the dish, and so that's where I was trying to keep the skin on. So yeah, you got to take some time with that. And by doing that, it gave me a bit of time to think about what am I going to say as I, my closing part of this, this episode. Um, 
so yeah, like like I said, I, I plucked those. I had four birds total that I plucked out after a 24-hour hang. Um, two of the roosters I completely skinned out. Um, I wanted to make a couple mounts, one for myself, and then, um, as I mentioned earlier, Ben, our, uh, our Judd's father-in-law, that came along with us. He wanted me to uh, also clean his birds for him. He didn't have the time nor the setup in his home to do it, and I, I offered to do that since he did drive the whole way. But anyway, I, I skinned out a rooster for him as well, so we've got two roosters that are completely skinned out. But by making taking a center cut along the middle of the breast and working my way out, I actually disconnected the first joint of the wings just to give them some structure. But by pulling the skin completely away in one piece, we've created these really nice mounts. I've laid them flat, and we've got borax and salt, uh, a mixture that I've put you know, probably a quarter inch thick over the skin and a little bit and I, a little bit more where those uh, tail pocket and where the wing pockets are at, really mounding it up with the attempts of drawing as much moisture out of that and preserving that skin, um, not necessarily tanning the hide, but dehydrating it enough that it's going to become stiff and not go bad on us hence using the, the borax, along with the salt. So hopefully we'll be able to have a nice couple mounts that we can show off here for our adventure. But the other four I did pluck, and I got pretty good skid retention, but like I said, I got plenty of tears. One of the most difficult parts I had was not necessarily in the center of the breast, but along the flanks of the breast where the guard feathers are. Guard feathers being that they've got a thicker quill and they cover more of that breast as opposed to the smaller down feathers that are um, in the middle and on the direct sides. I had lots of tearing as I tried to get um, that quill to come out. It was almost like one feather at a time. That could have been from the drying or from the, the hanging and the dry aging as well. Um, just because now that skin is not as um, full of moisture, but it has dehydrated a bit. But we did our best. And I got a couple birds that have semi-intact skin that I'm able to then uh, put in the pot, put in the pan, or put in the roaster. Um, my next point here. So yeah, I've got them, got them plucked. They are spending a couple additional days in the fridge um, before I can get them into the into the vac and into the freezer. I am leaving out one bird in particular to be the first bird that I do, and in fact, I'm only doing a part of it. Uh, I'm going to be doing a roast pheasant crown, and I'm still kind of playing around with that on as far as how I want to dress it, how I want to. Um, approach the seasoning on it. I want to go straightforward. I want to taste what the bird is. I don't want to have it so doctored up that I can't distinguish it from a chicken or to the point where I'm like, yeah, pheasant equals chicken. I want to taste the wild, <laughs> as close to wild as this bird was to being a pheasant. I want to get that uniqueness. So by having uh, the right set of seasonings on that, Try and just think of what herbs I'm going to be able to use. But I do want to go with just a roast crown, taking the the breast off, actually separating it from the back, leaving the back, the neck, and the hind quarters as a second piece. 
Um, I've got different uses for those pieces as well, but the crown is going to be the sole thing that I want to do. Um, it'll be for just me and my wife basically to try. We might have to go heavy on the sides um, just because it is a smaller portion, but judging by the bird, I think we're each going to get a nice size half breast um, when doing this this crown. But now for the rest of the bird. You know, I've taken off the crown and I've got this second part of the bird. I've got the neck, the back, and the hindquarters. Um, per Hank Shaw's recommendation to separate the drumstick from the thigh, um, you're saving yourself a lot of um, work with the tendons and sinew that are in those drumsticks. I mean, even though these are pen raised, these are athletes compared to normal barnyard chickens um, that have been, you know, really plumped up. These things run, these things jump, and they fly all the time. It was incredible to see the amount of athleticism out of these birds, um, both in just the, the flush as you're walking up, you know, mere feet from you. The bird gets about two pumps with the wings on its first jump to get above the grass, and it's like that's your first identifying marker. And this thing just then accelerates through the air. They are really flying fast. And I think that has to do with just, I mean, their ability to survive in the wild. And that translates, that athleticism translates into some of that toughness, some of that sinew. Um, man, they're fast runners too. A couple of them didn't want to flush and they just booked it. And it was very difficult to get a bead or an eye on these uh, birds as they were moving. So back to that drumstick again, because it works hard, separate it out. Go with a slow braise on those drumsticks um, and the, the thighs. I'm, I'm intrigued to try out the thighs in something different, also a low and slow ordeal. But we're going to save that for another time. The, uh, the neck and the back is going to be in for stock and for soup. I've created venison stock, and I'll probably just keep that as a you know, just specific venison only. Um, but as you get into a lighter stock, you could almost broaden it. And from just a pheasant stock, you can say an upland bird stock or a small game stock so that the next time that I am making it, I can put in the pheasant and maybe I can then add in quail, turkey, whatever light meats that I'd like to have to get something in that general realm that I'm having a small game or I'm having an upland bird stock from that to really enhance some of the complexity of it. So you can go many different birds into one pot. So we'll save that back and we'll save the next for that. Plus to be able to slow, uh, slowly roast that neck in the back, you know, simmer it out and maybe even pluck and pick uh, the meat out of that. That would go great in a, in a soup for a, a really, really cold day. Um, but yeah, back to the leg quarters and, um, the, yeah, the leg quarters, the thighs, and the drums. I'm thinking maybe a braise or even a confit. Um, I've heard uh, a little bit about the confit with rabbit and being able to work with duck. And basically, you're lightly curing these, um, these parts in a duck fat or a lard or of some sort. You actually jar it up. And the longer that it stays in there, uh, the more tender that meat becomes to the point where when you uh, open it up and pull it out, it's you can it rips apart into uh, shreds and ribbons of of meat that you can then 
be able to use. Takes a tough piece of meat and makes it very tender, very palatable. So that's kind of where we're going with it. The other uh, struggle I had, just kind of putting this whole thing together, is I'm I'm looking at my bounty at this point, and I've got to my own disposal three small birds. I say small, but I'm saying like there's there's three meals here, and my mind is just trying to figure out which recipe to go with. I'm excited to go a hundred different directions, but I've only got these three birds. You can be frozen by the idea of, I don't know what to make, or I want to make so much, and you can't figure out which one you want to start with, and so you put it into the freezer, and then you're like, I'll I'll figure out a day, or I'll figure out a time that I can go ahead and use that, and that day never seems to come quickly. And from that result, you may forget about what you have, or you never come to the idea of what recipe you want to do, and you may lose that protein, you lose that meat to freezer burn or to just being shuffled around and becoming freezer treasure, which at that point, freezer treasure is still good, but it would just be awful for that vac to break and you basically end up having that piece of meat ruined. So I had to come to the conclusion that if you end up with a unique piece of meat or a unique protein like these upland pheasants, first time I've done it. I've got three. I don't know when the next time I'm going to go. I'm going to have to make a decision. Better to make a decision and make something great than have to dwell on something and never get a chance to do it. So I'm forcing myself to say, hey, I'm going to take this bird and I'm going to do a roasted pheasant crown. I'm not going to research it so much that I never get to it. I'm not going to try and overthink it I just need to do it. And that's where I've come to the conclusion that at some point, you're going to have to use it. You're going to have to enjoy it. And why not enjoy it at its peak? The other two birds, because it's a lighter meat, because it doesn't last as long as a piece of red meat would, piece of venison in the freezer, I may want to use these pretty early, you know, maybe within the month, maybe within the next two months, but be able to go back to those before I let the freezer take its toll. That was a takeaway that I had as I was plucking those birds, thinking about the million different directions to go. We're just going to have to pick one. So folks, I will get after that and I'll probably give you an update on how that goes. And uh, until next time. Keep your knife sharp.